We're in Luke's Gospel at the end of chapter 23. I'll read from verse 44 to the end of the chapter. Luke 23 from verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that sight, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Let's pray again. Lord, in dealing with these sombre but sweet things, Will you bring upon us, O oh God, a sense of holy reality? Will you grant to us, O oh Father, an understanding of what this means and what it means for us? Will you grant that we may not treat it frivolously or carelessly or thoughtlessly, but rather, gracious King, that we might grasp its truths, feel its wonder, respond to it with faith and with hope and with love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The darkness had fallen over Calvary. Hell hoped that it had triumphed. Wicked men imagined that this was the moment of their conquest and the faithful feared defeat. The Lord Jesus, having cried out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. It seems that it was about this point that the darkness began to lift, but the heaviness remained. What now? What next? What else? What can we do now with a dead Messiah, with a man whose broken body hangs upon a cursed cross? As we read the record of our Lord's burial, the first thing it does is it confirms his death. A real man really died. 
This isn't just a, a notion, just an idea. You remember that from the beginning, the curse was put upon fallen mankind, that dying, they would die. In Psalm 22 and verse 15, there the psalmist talks about being brought to the very dust of death. The Lord Jesus Christ really died and he was really buried. And in that, you have an evident proof of his humanity. Now, there are still theories that get circulated with regard to the death and burial of the Lord Jesus. Swoon theories and swap theories are among the most prominent of them. The swoon theory that Jesus just suffered quite badly on the cross, that they took him down before he was really dead. And once they laid him in the tomb, that he revived because it was nice and cool inside. The swap theory, that they got the body wrong, that it wasn't this man who was buried in that particular tomb, or that they got the tomb wrong and they went back to maybe someone who'd just been having a nap in a tomb and it was he who came forth. My friends, the crucifixion was designed to kill people, to kill them horribly, but certainly. These soldiers knew their job and these mourners knew their man. We read in John's Gospel, for example, that uh, when Pilate was told that the Lord Jesus was already dead, he sent his soldiers to check, to make sure. We know that when they worked their way round and they were going to break the legs of those who were hanging on the crosses to make sure that they could no longer lift themselves up to drag some breath into their agonised lungs. But they didn't bother breaking the legs of Jesus because he was already dead. But they put a spear into his side nonetheless, from which blood and water gushed forth. These Roman soldiers, they made sure that he was dead. And these mourners knew their beloved Jesus of Nazareth. He was on the cross and he died. And having really died, he was really buried and that is important for us my friends because it means that the sacrifice was truly made the wages of sin is death and if Jesus Christ didn't die for us if he did not take the dying traitor's place and suffer instead of us to the very point of death then the price is not paid if the Lord Jesus Christ did not really die then your atonement and mine has not been really accomplished But Christ died for the ungodly. He laid down his life in the place of his people. He suffered in full the penalty of sin, the punishment that you and I deserve. It was not just in his last hours that the weight of the curse fell upon him. And then somehow the storm passed over and he just got on with things again. No, he was brought even to death as he prophesied that the Son of Man must suffer many things, must be crucified, must die. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, you trust in the lamb slain. Not the lamb just wounded a little. Not the lamb who had a bad time but got over it. Not a lamb that they weren't sure about and wondered if it could be some other lamb. It was the lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world by suffering and dying 
in the place of those whom the Father has given him. And it is this man in whom we trust. The record that we have before us, even if you take it as it is, let alone pulling together these other details from John's Gospel or Mark's Gospel. The death is confirmed. It's one of the most painful things about it. It's the challenge that the disciples face. He really has died. Remember, we'll come to it shortly, the road to Emmaus. We thought this was the man who was going to deliver Israel. But he's died and it's three days since these things happened. The death is confirmed. Look at the people now who are involved around this death of Jesus Christ. There's an individual and there's a small group. There's Joseph of Arimathea and there are these other women. Joseph of Arimathea is described as a council member. That puts him alongside another person whose name you might know or remember, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the man who in John chapter 3 came to Jesus by night because he was a council member. Joseph of Arimathea, like Nicodemus, belongs to the Sanhedrin. He's a top-ranking Jewish official. But he's not like most of the others. He's described here in these three lovely ways after being called a council member. He's a good and a just man. He's genuinely upright. He's one of the good guys. But not just in the sense that he's a little bit nicer than them. Where he takes things a little bit more seriously than them. This is the kind of language that is used to describe a man who stands before God well grounded. That's this Joseph. He comes from Arimathea. And he is not consenting to their decision and their deed. Now again, it's interesting to trace the character of this man uh, and Nicodemus with him. Uh, John chapter 7, John chapter 19. These men had been at first more secretive. They've, they've tried to keep their testimony to Jesus under wraps. After all, it's a dangerous thing to be a Sanhedrin member who's also a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. They're all saying, blasphemer, kill him and everybody who believes that nonsense. And from time to time, they'd be the ones who've challenged and said, but doesn't the law also say that you shouldn't condemn a man until you've heard him? Don't these circumstances require something different? In Luke chapter 22, it has said the Sanhedrin, all of them condemned Jesus. I think that suggests that perhaps Joseph of Arimathea and again perhaps Nicodemus, they have already said we are not going to have anything to do with this. We will not sit among you and lend our names and our voices and our hands to the vote that you take to put Jesus of Nazareth to death. These are men who have begun now to take a stand. Joseph of Arimathea is a man who himself is waiting for the kingdom of God. I love that waiting description that comes up time and again in the scriptures. Do you remember another man who was waiting? Simeon, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Joseph of Arimathea has the same kind of patient but eager expectation. This is discipleship language now. This is a man who knows and follows God and has come to understand something about Jesus Christ as the Messiah of God. 
He is described by Matthew chapter 27 and verse 57 as a disciple. So you put all of these things together. You say, Joseph of Arimathea, he's a disciple. He's a follower of Jesus Christ. He's a good man. He's a just man. He's a man too of rare courage. He's begun to stand up to the Jews and he goes to Pilate. Pilate. The Roman governor who has condemned this Jesus as a criminal said, well, I don't think he's done anything wrong, but you can take him and we will crucify him. And it's this Joseph who, having stood up to the Jews, goes to Pilate and says, I'd like the criminal's body, please. I'd like the body of the man that you put upon a cross. A secret disciple, it seems until now. We're strange creatures, aren't we? You might have thought it would have been easier to follow Jesus Christ than he was going in triumph into Jerusalem. It would be easier to say, I'm following the Lord Jesus when he was healing the multitudes. Joseph is given grace to associate himself before the Jews and the Gentiles with Jesus at the moment of his deepest humiliation. When it seems he has absolutely nothing to gain. My friends, do people know that you're a follower of Jesus? Do they know where you stand? We've said it before, we will say it again. Not just that you go to church. Not just that you're religious. Not just that perhaps you read your Bible. Do people know by your willingness to stand up and be counted, that you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. With him, these women, they had come with Jesus from Galilee and they were following after. They're observing, they're watching. They've seen the death of the Lord Jesus. I think they're the same ones who were around him, standing at a distance in verse 49, watching these things. They're doing the same thing now. Verse 55, they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. They've watched their Jesus die. Now they're seeing the Lord Jesus being buried. I don't think I'm breaking any confidences with anybody here when I tell you that they will also see him in his resurrection. These are the witnesses. These are the people who are now at the forefront of the battle at what seems to be its darkest moment. Who would you have chosen? Can we not get the disciples together here? The 11 who are left? These vigorous, manly Fishermen and ex-tax collectors and whatever else they may be. Those who've been three years with Jesus trained for this very moment. Can't we get a bit of the cream of the crop? Luke says the women who'd come with him from Galilee. They'd followed him a long way. They followed him to the very end. I think there's two comments that we need to make as we look at Joseph of Arimathea and this small group of women. The first is this, that sometimes God's people, and this is not a commendation, but I think it's better than nothing, are marked marked more by faithfulness than faith. More by love than by hope. 
They think he's dead. They're going to put him in a tomb. Like those on the road to Emmaus, they seem to have concluded that this is the end. They love him too much to abandon him, but they have forgotten what he said about his return. They are faithful, aren't they? They're still there. They take down his body. They watch what's going on. They make these investments. Faithfulness, but not so much faith in what he has said. Now I say that not to allow us to sink down to a lower level, but to remind us that sometimes true disciples do not have the faith which we should, but still faithfulness. Those seasons where it's really hard work, it's difficult to believe what lies ahead, but we go on clinging to Jesus Christ. The moments where we've got our hands upon him, but we're not sure what lies in the next days or weeks or months. I say in that sense, not the best, but better than nothing. The other thing that we should acknowledge is that courage is sometimes found in strange places and at curious moments. Some of you will have seen, will have traced, followed these vile decisions that are being made at the top of the so-called Church of England in these days. Have you heard of a man called Jamie John? You might not have done. Jamie John is a, an Anglican evangelist. I think he's woolly on a lot of things. I think he's fluffy about a lot of things. He's got that kind of unbearable lightness about him, the kind of, it's, it's a kind of a, I think it's typical of a certain class of, of preacher. Everything has to be funny. Everything has to be a joke. Jamie John's son stood up and told the bishops very clearly what the Bible says this week. And Jamie John wrote a quite excellent letter saying, why are the bishops abandoning the historic faith and life of the people of God? I'm going, him? Really? Of all the, now he's got a bit of a platform, of all the people that I might have imagined would be in the front line of saying, this is not right. How dare you abandon the historic faith and life of God's people down through centuries? And there's Jamie John saying, God has spoken and you can't say otherwise. It is curious sometimes how the last people that you would expect, the most timid, the most fearful, the most retiring, sometimes when the chips are down, it is them who stand up to be counted. It was quite a remarkable thing sometimes in the training camps before the, the Second World War. You would find when you brought the men in drafted for combat, there'd often be some of these big guys, you know, the sort of American football type players, the type A personalities, and they're always beating their breasts. You wait till I get out there. You'll see what I do to these guys or those guys or the other guys. And then there were some very quiet people who just got on with the training. And it was notable how often, not invariably, but how often in combat, it was the puffed up boasters who crumpled into a foxhole and began to cry for their mummies while the quiet men performed deeds of valour and heroism. Let's be careful before we jump to too many conclusions about who stands at the forefront in the battle for truth and for righteousness. 
When the time came, Joseph of Arimathea stood up to be counted. And a group of women were the ones who held fast to Christ. The people involved. The honour that is shown. Can you imagine now being at the foot of the cross? Hanging there at eye level. With his head bowed. His body absolutely bloodied. His hands held out. Blood and gore still dripping from his wounds in his feet and in his side. And his hands in his face upon his head. And you get to take down Jesus of Nazareth from the cross. Can you imagine Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they're clearly wealthy men. Don't know how close the women got. Perhaps they call their servants. They take the cross out of the ground. Can you imagine being the person who draws the nails out of the hands of your saviour? Out of his feet. They take the linen. How delicately they put the body there on the ground and wrap it up perhaps no time even to wash it which would have been normal practice John tells us that Nicodemus brought the first lot of spices he brought enough to wrap up a king not a criminal who died on a cross Joseph laid this body in his own brand new tomb nothing had ever been put there before there was no corruption It's interesting how often the Lord Jesus has new things reserved for him. Born of a what? Virgin. Riding into Jerusalem on what? A cult on which no man has ever sat. Laid in what kind of a tomb? One that's been freshly cut out of the rock where no other body has ever laid. No decay ever touches him. Now the women expect to anoint him again. They're ready to come back once the Sabbath is over to, to finish the work. Uh, there's, uh, there's not enough time to do what they need to do. But even in these few hours before the Jewish Sabbath begins on the Friday evening, you see the honour that is shown to Jesus Christ. That reminds us again, first of all, that your body is important. That is why as a church we always recommend, we encourage and we direct the burial of a Christian man or woman rather than cremation or something else. Very often at the point of death there's this curious paganism that creeps in that says that well the the body's now gone. I mean they're not there anymore. We hear it even at Christian burials. They're not here. They are. That body's important. That's the body that's going to rise from the grave. That's the body which belongs to me or to you. Some of the other manuscripts uh, that lie behind this say that it doesn't just say that he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb. Some manuscripts have a slight shift here. He took it down, wrapped it in linen and laid him in a tomb. It's important to remember that. Both in living, that this body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in dying, that this is part of the humanity for which I have a duty of care. That there's an honour that is to be shown. 
we also need to recognise that they knew where they put him. Joseph of Arimathea had spent a lot of money on this particular tomb. It was probably quite a large one if he was a wealthy man. Typically, they would have had uh, built uh, openings maybe about the size of one of these windows, uh, perhaps a little a bit lower than that. And there would have been a, a, something bur- burrowed into the rock with niches on each side where you could put the bodies to rest. That was no small investment, not least just outside Jerusalem. Do you think Nicod- uh, Joseph of Arimathea rather knew which tomb was his? And these women went and they observed where he was and how the body was laid. It wasn't just somewhere over there, there's a tomb. That helps to confirm his identity. When they go back, they go back to that tomb. Joseph would have been able to say, yeah, that's where we put him. We put him in there, the first place on the left or whatever it might have been. There's also a beautiful little echo here. Of the work of the Lord Jesus. All he has done in his life. He has done for others. He's come not to be served. But to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. He is always a representative. For his people. What he does. He does for them. Isn't there something at least. Telling in the fact that he's now buried. In another man's tomb. He's where Nicodemus should be. Actually, brother and sister, he's where you and I ought to be. He's in the tomb. He has suffered and he has died. So then, you've got the death that is confirmed. You've got the people who are involved. You've got the honour that they show to the body of our Lord Jesus, taking him down from the cross, wrapping him in linen, putting him into this new tomb. And you've got the prophecies that are being fulfilled. We need to keep tracking this. We need to be aware of this. This very Jesus in his life and in his death is fulfilling everything that is spoken in the law and in the prophets. Now, as we work through with his life, we see time and time again. Luke does it, even though Luke is writing largely for a different audience to Matthew, for example. Matthew does it in spades. This was done so that it might be fulfilled, which was written. The prophets have spoken. God has declared. He has promised that his Messiah will do certain things. Who does all those things? It's Jesus of Nazareth. And God has spoken through his prophets and he said that the sufferings and death of Messiah will be a certain way. Down to the very details. Who is it who dies having suffered in that specific way? It's Jesus of Nazareth. It goes beyond anything that this world could call coincidence. It's God's purpose and providence. And the same is true with regard to his burial. With regard to the law, everything is done according to what God has said. With regard to the prophets, everything that is required is fulfilled. So Genesis 3.19, we've mentioned it. As in Adam, all die. The second Adam, he must die also because he bears the sins of his people. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 21 or Joshua chapter 8 or chapter 10... When you have a man who hangs on a tree 
Remember the symbolism. Earth doesn't want him and heaven won't have him. He's hanging between the earth and the heavens. He is under a curse. If you leave that man on the tree, he will defile or pollute the land. And that's why Joseph of Arimathea comes and takes down the body. Again, is it not marvellous, this wonderful providence? That lest, even in the passivity of death, our Lord should be seen or thought to be in some way disobeying the law. Now's the moment that Joseph of Arimathea takes courage, goes to Pilate, says, I want that body, and buries him between the third hour and the sixth hour, so that by the time the Sabbath comes, the work has been completed. Psalm 16 and verse 10. The beloved of the Lord, the chosen one, he sees no corruption. He's not laid in the grave in order to rot. But he's not laid in a grave which has seen any rottenness, any corruption, any decay. It's a new tomb. And he himself will not be consumed within it. Psalm 22 and verse 15. They will bring him to the dust of death. Perhaps most specifically now and again, here's Joseph of Arimathea, no accidental servant of God. He was taken from prison and from judgment, says Isaiah 53.8. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Is that not marvellous? That the man who happens to be in a position to undertake this work, the man who, under the influence of the Spirit of God, takes up courage at this moment, is the man who answers the very description that God has said for the one in whose tomb the body of our Lord will be laid. There are others too, some of them perhaps less obvious, some of them more figurative. Here's Lamentations chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. I sometimes think when we read about how these things speak of him, we very quickly get the obvious stuff, I hope. How many more hints and shadows, signposts and pointers may there be that speak to us of details in the life and the death and the burial of our Lord Jesus, which show us that he is indeed the Messiah of God. Not just that it's this particular Jesus, this particular body, but this Jesus who is God's anointed one, this Messiah of God, this true Christ, this sacrifice. We should not doubt, should we, the providences of God, even when they seem to run counter to express promises. You might have looked at the Lord Christ and everybody's departing and you say, well, how would these things be fulfilled now? How will God bring to pass what he has said concerning Messiah? And it just so happens that that's the moment when a Joseph of Arimathea takes courage, steps onto the stage 
God has his proper and appointed servants in every place in order to accomplish what he has promised. And therefore we should not doubt the promises even when they seem to run counter to the possible providences. The last thing we want to observe is the Sabbath. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed after and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. This is what's driving the pace at this point. They need to conclude these things before around six o'clock on the evening of the Friday, which is when the Jewish Sabbath begins. A Jewish Sabbath runs from sundown to sundown and days are counted in parts and not in wholes. So the day of rest has come. And by the time the day of rest begins, Christ's body is resting in the grave. And the women rest from their work according to the commandment. What had God said to his people? Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your manservant nor your maidservant nor your ox nor your donkey, your stranger within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now under what circumstances do you imagine these women might have said, not today, not this day. This is a day when we should get on with things. I think if you'd said there was any day which might have been an exception to God's rule, it would have been the day when Jesus Christ was lying in the grave. We love him. We believe who he is. We can't leave this for too long. He deserves this honour. He deserves this respect. Do you doubt the love that these women had for their saviour? Do you doubt the commitment that they had to him? No. But God has spoken. Suppose they had broken the Sabbath. Suppose they had gone to the tomb on the second day. Found somebody to push the stone away gone into the tomb and completed the anointing of their Lord? Would they have been there to witness the resurrection? Would the clear testimony of the stone rolled away by heavenly power, by angelic force, have been so plain? My friends, the very obedience that they had to the commands of God was part of God's means of blessing them and of testifying to us. We can become very sentimental when it comes to obedience to God. Of course we obey him, but not when my wife's involved, not when my husband's involved, not when my family's involved, not when my children have these concerns, not where the pressure may be on in this regard. If these women had allowed their sentiment to overrule their conviction... How much would they have missed out? And how much might we? This is not inhuman. Not suggesting that it should be or should become so. 
We remember that there are works of conscience, works of uh, piety, works of mercy, works of necessity that are proper on the day that God has appointed for rest. But for these ladies, even anointing the body of their saviour didn't trump the word that God had given. And so their obedience ensured that they would be witnesses of the resurrection. Their obedience helped us to know in some of these particular details of what took place when the Lord Christ came forth from the grave. But this was not human invention. This was not human effort. This was divine appointment and endeavour. Let me ask, ask and answer one brief question, not in great detail. You might say, okay, his body's there. What has happened to his soul? Well, I can tell you this. Despite questions that there may be about uh, the, the, the route which it took and the, 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 the eventual destination, you need to remember that the Lord Jesus had already said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. That much we can be certain of. That in the language of Psalm 24, the gates were lifted up. The king of glory went in. But the soul of the incarnate son of God was received into the presence of his father at this time. But they don't seem to know it, do they? They're not seem to be very sure. There's faithfulness here. But is there very much faith? There is love here. But is there very much hope? On earth, it all looks so very final. And as we step back and contemplate then the burial of our Lord Jesus in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, we need to remember when we consider the death that's being confirmed, the people who are involved, the honour that is shown, the prophecies that are fulfilled and the Sabbath that is observed, that in all of this there is not one word of the Lord that is falling to the ground. If all of this has been fulfilled so far, remember the question with which we began? What now? What next? What else? And what could Joseph of Arimathea have said? And what could these ladies have said? And what could the other disciples have said? Those who were gathered but following at a distance. They could have said, we know what comes next. Because this is the Jesus. And it's recorded for us even in Luke's Gospel in 1833 and 24-7. This is the Jesus who told us what was going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Check. I'm going to suffer. Check. I'm going to die. Check. And I will rise again on the third day. No, probably not. Isn't that tragic? Everything that Christ has said has been fulfilled. But at this moment, it seems that they do not believe him. And we cannot point the finger and say, oh, you have little faith. Why not? Because you sometimes speak as if all the promises have been good up to now, but we can't trust them from here on in. You sometimes live 
As if everything God has done is good so far, but we're not sure that he's going to be faithful for the future. Yes, I've trusted him before, almost by default. I mean, what choice did I have? But can I really trust him now? Aren't there things that I need to do? Or maybe just there is no hope. Brothers and sisters, to trust what God has said. Do you see the prophecies? Do you see the testimonies? Do you see the declarations? Things that have been spoken from centuries before and they're being fulfilled in specific and precise detail in the death and in the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. The testimonies of his own teaching while he was here upon earth. This is what must happen. This is where, this is when, this is how, and this is what will come afterwards. My friends, we too need the kind of confidence that seems to have been lacking in some of them. In the darkness, we should be anticipating the coming light. We should be anticipating it here for Christ. He has died, but it's not the end. How do you know? Because everything he said so far has come to pass. And he has said that he will rise again on the third day. And he did rise. He has risen. And that means we need to believe that he is reigning at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Do you believe that too? Well, it doesn't feel... I don't... It doesn't matter what it feels like. God has spoken, has he not? Do you believe that this Jesus, this Jesus, died in the place of his people? Do you believe that he died for you? Do you believe that he was buried for you? Do you believe that he has risen for you? Are you persuaded that he is reigning for you? Do you know in your soul that he will return for you? You can, you should, you do. Because Christ has spoken. And that means certain things, not just for Christ, if I can use that language, but for us too. Why? Because if he's risen, what about me and you? What about your loved ones who are now lying in their graves? Will the head rise and the body be left behind? Will the first fruits be gathered in and the harvest be abandoned? Who lay in Joseph's grave? The man who died for you. The man who will rise for you. The man to whom you are united by faith. The son of God in flesh. Your death is covered by his death. Your burial is covered by his burial. And your resurrection is covered by his resurrection. There are times when everything seems dark. There are times when we look at circumstances and there's more faithfulness than there is faith. And there's more love than there is hope. You could, I think, make at least some excuse for Joseph of Arimathea. I think you can understand the women who stood Around the cross. They saw him die. And they brought down his body. And they laid it in a tomb. 
we say to them, you should have believed. You knew what God had said. You knew what God would do. What do you say to yourself? I should be believing. I know what God has done. I know what God has accomplished. I'm living in the light of the resurrection. We know that Christ has risen again from the dead. My friends, be faithful. Yes, but have faith. Love him. Yes, but hope also. Believe what has happened. Believe what will happen. And let us live trusting in him who lived, who died, who was buried and who rose again on the third day. Amen.